Let us pray. O Lord, you sit enthroned as king forever. In the storms of life, give strength to your people and bless us with your peace. Amen. Please be seated. I love a good thunderstorm. Or even better, a blizzard. But only when I can observe the storm from the comfort of my home. Preferably on my sheltered patio in the summer or in front of a nice warm fire in the fireplace in the winter. But if I'm outside driving through hail or spinning out on black ice, as I've done a couple of times, or worse, flying through a typhoon as we came in for a landing in Taiwan a few years ago, well, let's just say that my prayer life increases dramatically in those situations. This morning, I'm calling our sermon, Two Storms and Two Prayers. We're going to look at a storm in Jonah and another storm on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples. We can learn a lot from these two biblical stories that is so relevant today, for we are facing numerous storms. This week, Hurricane Isaias pounded the East Coast and relief efforts were complicated by the continued COVID-19 pandemic. I imagine quite a few prayers were uttered even by those who never go to church. Okay, let's look at Jonah first. As I said last Sunday, the ruins of ancient Nineveh, where Jonah was told to go and preach, those ruins lie outside of the city of Mosul. Jonah is supposedly buried there, and his grave was destroyed a few years ago by ISIS. Just as members of the so-called Islamic State need to hear the gospel, Nineveh needed a word from God. <coughs> and God had the perfect person to deliver it. Only Jonah couldn't stand the thought of going to his enemies. He was a political insider and not about to jeopardize his career. He prophesied that Israel would regain some lost property and those prophecies were fulfilled. So Jonah was welcome in the king's palace anytime. Going to Nineveh without the king's knowledge and blessing could be considered treason. Besides, Jonah, having come from the northern part of Israel, knew firsthand about the ruthlessness of the Assyrians. <coughs> they were making raids into northern Israel, and Jonah may well have seen his village destroyed, perhaps his parents killed or his sister raped. We don't know the details, but clearly, Jonah despised this, these evil people. So when God said, go, Jonah answered, no. His response, he emptied his bank account and bought a ticket for a Mediterranean cruise. And, and I thought, I'm sure he thought God would now have to find someone else to carry out this assignment. But God didn't have a plan B. Jonah 
was God's plan A and plan B. God so loved Nineveh that he sent a storm. He sent the storm not to punish Jonah, but to get him back on track. Jonah's first response, he went below deck and fell asleep. Honestly, I don't know how he could sleep in that turbulent sea without getting seasick, but he did. Interesting, the sailors were scared. They woke Jonah and asked him to call on his God. The pagans woke up the man of God and demanded answers. These hardened seamen were scared. They attempted to save the ship and they attempted to save Jonah by dumping their cargo and trying to row, row back to port. But the storm only got worse. You all know the story. Jonah concluded that the only solution was for the sailors to throw him into the sea. Only then would the ship and sailors survive. And this way, Jonah would again escape from God's assignment. Because I believe Jonah expected to drown. And that would be the end of the story. You see, Jonah would rather die than preach to his enemies. But Jonah didn't die. A large fish came and swallowed him up. Which brings us to our reading this morning. What can this prophet do? He's trapped. Well, Jonah does what he probably should have done from the moment God called him to Nineveh. He prayed. So let's look at Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. And the first thing I want us to notice is that nothing in Jonah's prayer is original. Jonah is praying from the Psalms. In fact, I counted nine different Psalms quoted in these 10 verses. I think that's significant. Now certainly free form prayer is certainly valid. And as an evangelical, I learned to pray this way. But personally, I find the Psalms and the liturgy helps give structure to my thoughts, to put them in an order and give expression to my emotions. Liturgy and scripture, particularly the Psalms, give form to the complexity of our lives. And further, praying these Psalms, praying these prayers, they expand our world. We are joining forces with thousands of others in the past and today around the world. Second, Jonah reveals to us that we can pray anytime, wherever we are. My guess is that back in Israel, Jonah prayed only when he was expected to pray. Perhaps he prayed before the king of Israel started a meeting. But did Jonah always pray on every in every occasion and situation? That's the gift, the opportunity that God gives us. Nevertheless, I suppose it's better for us to pray when we're desperate than not to pray at all. The significance of this prayer is that Jonah finally recognizes that God is the Lord of his life. It's interesting. God did not stop Jonah from running away. God allows us to choose to run away from him. However, consider the consequences. Jonah was very lonely. He'd left behind his family, his career, his people. 
and it was very dangerous. He was exposing himself to a storm that God never intended for him to experience. He was in the presence of pagan sailors who could very well have caused him a great deal of trouble. And now Jonah's in the belly of a fish, a very dark place indeed. Just imagine for a moment what Jonah is experiencing. As the fish dives and weaves through the water, Jonah is slipping and sliding around it in total darkness with no sense of orientation. This had to be a miserable experience. We get a hint in verse 5 of the terror when he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. We can see it's a fact that running away from God and from his will will never make our lives better. The third thing we ought to note is that in the midst of prayer, Jonah finds hope. Verse 6, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. How did Jonah get to this point? Well, first he died. Okay, maybe not literally, but he surely thought his life was over. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that to follow him meant we have to take up our cross, which is an instrument of death. When I was ordained a priest, Brother Andrew preached the sermon, and his text was Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. What does that mean? It means I have died, my old, selfish, self-centered, proud, arrogant self. Jesus says whoever loses his life will find it. And one of the things we lose when we die is fear. A dead person, a crucified person, can risk everything when he obeys God because his life is already in God's hands. So we can learn what Jonah learned. Do not be guided by your fears. Do not be guided by your frustration. Do not be guided by your preconceived ideas. When we experience fear or feel frustration, that should be a red light telling us that we are not relying on the cross. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. That's a fact and we can bank on that truth in any circumstance. Now there's one more thing I want us to observe, and that is what Ju Jonah did not pray for. Jonah never prays for Nineveh. He will obey God because he has no choice, but he still sees the Assyrians as the enemy. And I think that is a tragic mistake. Jonah's heart is hard. He doesn't care one bit for the lost. Jonah will preach judgment gladly. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah likes that message. But in the back of his mind, Jonah knows something else because he knows his Bible. Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses saying that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, every Old Testament prophet knew that verse. And you see evidence of that in almost every prophet's writings and in the Psalms. When Nineveh repented, God changed his mind. And yes, by the way, God can change his mind if people repent and follow his ways. That's another sermon for another day. But Jonah was angry because he wanted to go back to Israel as a hero, reporting that the problem of Nineveh was solved. The city was destroyed. 120,000 enemies are all dead. Jonah argued with God, saying that he had run away, saying, listen, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is speaking back to God directly from what God revealed to Moses. Here's the point. If Jonah knew the truth about God, then shouldn't he have revealed that to the people of Nineveh? But no, Jonah can't change his attitude. He hates these people, and he is certainly not going to pray for them that God would have mercy on them and save them. In fact, the book of Jonah ends with God pleading for Jonah to understand. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? That was God's heart, but that was not Jonah's. We need to allow God to break our hearts for the lost. You know what the scriptures say? Listen to 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every Sunday we hear the words of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. If this is the heart of God, then this should be our heart also. In fact, in the reading today from uh, Romans, listen again to what Paul is saying. His heart, he expresses great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Who? For the people of Israel who are cut off from Christ. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the converts, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He wants them to come to know the fullness of the Lord Jesus that he knows and loves. If that's the heart of God, then this should be our heart also. It should be part of our prayer life, praying for the lost whether in our neighborhood or our city or nation or any nation in the world. We must not have an enemy image of anyone because if we have an enemy image, then the love of God can't flow through us. That was Jonah's problem. The people of Nineveh were the enemy. They never saw the love of God in the prophet. Sadly, Jonah never learned that lesson. Okay, let's move quickly into the gospel reading today. Last Sunday, we explored the feeding of the 5,000 when the disciples were asked to feed the people and they realized that they absolutely couldn't do it with their own resources or power. Their solution was to allow Jesus to give them the food to distribute. 
And if they ran out of bread, they just went back to Jesus for more until everyone was fed. After serving that meal, Jesus put the disciples in their boat and sent them across the lake while Jesus went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Let me just note that prayer was a natural part of Jesus' life. He was in constant communion with his heavenly father. But he was also human, and as such, there were times when he needed solitude. Originally, Jesus had taken the disciples to this remote place to retreat, to provide space for them to grieve the death of John the Baptist. But people took priority for a time because the crowds followed him, and Jesus had compassion on them. But now Jesus is tired, and he is strengthened by spending time alone with God. Meanwhile, the disciples are a long way from land, and the wind, as it often does on the Sea of Galilee, has whipped up a pretty nasty squall. The waves were beating them and tossing the boat around. It was the fourth watch of the night. That is sometime between 3 a.m. and dawn. The twelve were wet, no doubt exhausted. And what do they see? They see Jesus walking to them on the water. Now, this is also reported in Mark chapter 6, and I remember the first time I read it, it actually Mark actually says that Jesus meant to pass them by. And I, I don't know, sometimes these silly things get in my head, and I can just imagine Jesus walking on these water, turbulent waters, waving to the disciples and say, see you on the other side. <laughs> but the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. I would have been terrified just like them. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What comforting words. In the darkest time of night, when they were tired, terrified, Jesus came to them. And then Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now I wonder what caused Peter to say this. Perhaps he thought this was some kind of cool trick. And if he was successful, what a great story he could tell his kids someday. I wonder if Jesus kind of chuckled and said, sure, come. Jesus allows Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water, which is rather amazing. I kind of wonder how far he went in his walk toward Jesus. But it then says Peter saw the wind which is a rather curious statement, don't you think? After all, you can't really see the wind. You can feel it. You can see what it's doing. Those waves had to be pretty rough. I wonder if Peter had a little trouble keeping his balance as the water rolled under him. But the result was that Peter was suddenly afraid. And at that point, he began to sink. And that's when Peter prays. Now, compared to Jonah, this is a very short prayer. Just three words. Lord, save me. I like that. You see, our prayers don't have to be eloquent. Sometimes short is better. Save me. Or Lord, have mercy. Or help. Jesus answered immediately. He reached out his hand and grabbed hold of Peter. 
And I wonder if Jesus smiled as he said to Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Good question. See, Peter had no problem doing the impossible as long as he focused on Jesus. But Peter's faith took a tumble when he took his eyes off of his Lord. And I think that's a good lesson for all of us. Well, what do we do with these two stories? How do we apply the lessons of Jonah and Peter? First, I would note that while God calls us to know him and love him, that doesn't protect us from storms. Circumstances of life are going to arise as storms and buffet us. We should not be surprised by these storms. However, we are not helpless. We are invited to pray before, during, and after the storms. They can be formal prayers or shouted pleas in the heat of the moment. I would only say that we shouldn't wait until the circumstances are desperate. Prayer should be a natural part of our daily life. Second, I would also note that storms may restrict us and may limit our options. The storm in Jonah drove him towards Nineveh, where he should have been going anyway. In Peter's case, the storm forced him to focus on the only option he had, which was to cry out to Jesus. This would suggest grace. For if we never had storms, we would become very comfortable and could easily lose the need to pray. These last few months, the coronavirus has forced us to realize that we aren't as in control as we think. As Joe and I have met with most of you now in the church, I think every single family has asked us to pray about the schooling situation, which is totally uncertain. Are they going to go to school? Are they going to stay home? How do we juggle our work? How do we homeschool if we're not into homeschooling? We are forced to call out to God for wisdom, for his salvation. That's a good thing. That's one thing storms force us to do. Third, prayer rescues us from a preoccupation with ourselves and pulls us into adoration of and, and a pilgrimage to God. Mature prayer is dominated by a sense of God. Over the past 60 years since I surrendered my life to Jesus in New York City, I've learned that I can pray in any situation. I remember one particular occasion that was momentous for me. I was working a summer job during college at a, a, canning, a cannery, driving a forklift on the uh, graveyard ship. And the boss that night was just in a terrible frame of mind. And I could do nothing right. And I finally got rattled, in fact, and ran the forks through the first level of the cans rather than on the pallet where they should have gone. <laughs> and the boss completely blew it, lost, lost his temper. And I remember in that very instant just crying out to God, saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. You know, have, I don't remember exactly what I prayed, but something like help. And all of a sudden, I just I felt this peace come around me like a bubble that just kind of, as he was shouting, it's almost the words, I couldn't hear him anymore. 
it, he was he was going like this, and I was just in the midst of that peaceful uh, uh, bubble. And I've never forgotten that. And ever since, I can remember no, numerous occasions, maybe halfway around the world, exhausted, having to get up and speak and say, Lord, I, I can't do this. Have mercy on me. And every time, Jesus reaches down and gives me what I need at that moment. Now, he may not solve the problem. He didn't solve the problem of that boss. But he gave me the peace and the ability to get through that. Eugene Peterson writes that prayer releases the energy of grace rather than the frenzy of pride. It's a great reminder. Man thinks he can find the answers to a pandemic, to global climate change, to racial divisions without God. But frankly, we just aren't that smart or wise. True prayer makes us realize that we depend and have to depend on God's grace. Our prayers, the other thing I, I know, I, I think we need to notice from the Jonah and from uh, Peter walking on the water, our prayers are formed out of a relationship. In a few minutes, we will pray together, our Father. God is he gives us the idea of fatherhood in his loving care for us, his children. John Stott writes about the Lord's Prayer, the words in heaven denote not the place of his abode so much as the authority and power of his command as the creator and ruler of all things. Thus he combines fatherly love with heavenly power. This is the love we tap into when we pray. So whatever the storms, whether caused by our rebellion against God or by circumstances beyond our control, we can call out to him. Let's determine to be a people of prayer, focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we love you, and we long to focus our eyes on you. Sometimes that is hard when the waves of life buffet us. Strengthen our faith, we ask. May we be men and women of great faith, trusting you to carry us through the storms and even to do the impossible, all so that a world lost in darkness may see how great you are. We desire that all people may awaken to their need for a Savior. May we faithfully proclaim the hope we have in the crucified and risen Jesus.